All right, peace, Nicks. Peace, Allholics. Peacekeepers. <laughs> Sitting here with my wife, Megan. We just had uh, Thanksgiving just past this past week. Um, so I wanted to do a little what we're thankful for kind of thing. So I brought my wife in. Also, today's guest is Andy Fry. And we talk more about music than we do about drugs. Sometimes it's nice to have a little reprieve from the ongoing conversation about the horrible war on drugs. Um, but, you know, I was thinking, you know, you know we just lost. Everything. Everything <laughs> in the hurricane. No, we still have walls. No. We, have, we have a lot to be grateful for. Oh, yeah. We got our, you know, we got new cars now. We have, we're slowly building back. I don't have a studio. That's why if you notice it's a little noisy here. We're sitting on her father's uh, lanai, or what would you call this? Just the back. Uh, yeah, it's like a pool cage lanai area. So um, we're by the pool. It's really nice out. We're back in Florida. We got uh, our dogs out here with us, Reggie and Dan. And that's something to be thankful for. We, mm -hmm. know, we survived the storm. Our pets survived the storm. And um, you know, we, we got our first steady gig back every Friday at... Um, downtown Social House. Yep, downtown Fort Myers. And, um, and also, what I was thinking about is, yeah, we lost a lot of our like stuff. But it's just stuff. Stuff that can be replaced. But you know what I'm really thankful for is my friends and family and your friends and family. Absolutely, yeah. Because, you know, we're staying at our dad's, there's their dad and their stepmom, Tammy, and they're letting us, you know, stay here for as long as needed with our animals. Um, so thanks to them. Thanks to your sister, Kristen. Sister Big Kristen. Big time. Yep. Let us stay in our house in the woods up in North Carolina. It was beautiful. We were hiking every single day and getting our mind off of things. It was very, very psychologically beneficial. Angel Definitely. and Maria. Angel Maria. In Rhode in, Island. In Rhode Island. Um, and we got to go to Brooklyn. We've always talked about going to New York City together. It was just one night, but we were driving through. We were like, why not go see our friend's band at, um, what was the, uh, the name of the bar? Um, uh, Skinny Dennis. Skinny Dennis, that is it. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, freezing cold for us Floridians. Uh, cold, cold rain. Um, well, we had non-refundable Radiohead, well, not Radiohead, but the Smile Tom York tickets for Providence. Yeah. And so we just decided we had no place to be in Florida. We had no place to be anywhere, really, except for Providence for this concert. So why not just go? I know, so. You know, this has been the year of going to shows. Like, for <laughs> yeah, real. And we were supposed to go. We only missed two shows out of all the shows because of the hurricane. So we started the year off with, um, we went and saw the Beatles, Cirque du Soleil in Vegas. And we saw a comedy show in Vegas. Then we saw um, Tool. Before we flew to, flew to Vegas, we saw Tool in Tampa. And then we ended up seeing Elton John at the same venue in Tampa yep. a few months later. We saw Brit Floyd, amazing Pink Floyd cover band, and um, Fort Myers. And we went to Red Rocks and saw Andrew Bird and Iron and Wine. And, and uh, Nico, what was Nico it? Nico Case. Nico Case, yeah. That was awesome. And then um, Father John Misty in Asheville. Father John Misty in Asheville. That was my favorite. Yeah, and so we were supposed to go to the Flaming Lips in New Orleans, but that got. Um, you know, the hurricane was hitting the day that we would be flying back, so we did not make that show. We were supposed to go to the War on Drugs concert. It's a band, not affiliated to, with the War on Drugs. <laughs> oh, we got someone doing some sawing out here. Oh, that would be my life. dad. And um, but yeah, so we missed the War on Drugs. We missed the Flame of Lips, but we added Doug Stanhope in Charlotte, and we added her friend's band in Brooklyn. So you know what? Same amount of shows. Hey. So we're thankful for everything that we have going on. Thankful for you know. Yeah, we lost a lot this year, but we're thankful for what we still have, and we're super thankful to our friends and family who have helped us out. Yeah. 
right. Anything you want to add? Um, yeah, just you just realize how little everything really matters when you just don't have any of it anymore. Like we're, I'm so grateful that, thank God, our vinyls all made it because Aaron made these um, like stands for them that they, <clears throat> excuse me, containers that were four feet above where the water was. So that was good that we could hold on to them. Yeah. But um, everything else, like clothes and like, I don't know, everything just washed away and it's like, all right, well, this is just what we have now and we're just going to be kind of minimalist at this all right. point. I'm going to cut it off here because we have some loud sawing going on. Um, so we're going to go ahead and jump in. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut it off. It is super <laughs> loud. Um, so sorry for the annoying song sound, but that's what happens when you don't have a studio anymore. But yep. uh, again, super thankful to be alive, thankful to have our pets, thankful to have our, you know, our friends and our family. So today's guest is and Andy Fry. You can check his book out. It's 90 Days in the 90s. And I'm going to let him explain his book. I think it's a really cool concept. And like I say, I can't wait to read it. I usually like to read my books before I have the interviews, but we've been so busy and all over the place that I've not been doing enough reading. Anyway. Can I say one more thing? One more thing. I'm thankful for you. Oh, man. She beat me to it. <laughs> thankful for you, too. All right. Let's dive into this episode with Andy Fry. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug drugs are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the piece on drugs. On drugs. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, how's it going? Good, how you doing, Andy? Good. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, good to talk to you. You too. So, um, is there any questions you have before we, we go into this, or anything you want to? No, I keep it conversational. Where are you located at? I um, am temporarily in Mount Holly, North Carolina. I uh, I, I was in Fort Myers, Florida. Okay. And the hurricane got us, uh, kind of wiped us out. So. Um, okay. Yeah, so I'm up here in North Carolina for a few more days than Rhode Island, and then we're going back to Florida to live in a camper while our house gets rebuilt. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I've gone to Sanibel pretty much all my life. Um, I think my parents were down there, actually, probably in August. So who knows what it looks like now? I guess we'll we'll find out. But um, yeah, well, good luck to you and your your family and rebuilding and all that. Thank you. Yeah, it'll it'll happen. It'll take time. Yeah, we worked in Sanibel, Captiva, and Fort Myers Beach, and so we're out of a job. So basically, the podcast is all I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah. So you've been to you've been to the bubble room a number of times, I'm sure. I've been there only once. I worked that's a Keylon Bistro in RC Otters, so right there, um, right beside it. But yeah, I've only been there once. It's a really cool little spot, though. Yeah, it was basically you know cocktails and fried food, pretty much. But yeah. um, you know, I, when I was a kid, I loved going. I went back as an adult. Uh, probably the first time a couple of years ago. I was like, you know, this isn't as I mean, I, there's a cool spot, but it wasn't as great as I remember. I, as a kid, it was a special place to go. But now I don't eat chicken fingers and fries. So, uh, you know, it's a little different, I suppose. Yeah, that's it very I like Christmas. All the Christmas decorations would be more enjoyable as a child. But I still thought it was cool. I, only, I haven't had their food, though. I just went and had a cocktail. So all right, was, good enough. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so let's talk about your book. I, it's, I'm actually excited to read this. Is um. I just read the brief thing that you sent me. Mm -hmm. um, is the book out now? Yeah, it's been out since June. Uh, 90 Days in the 90s is, uh, took me about five years to write. and But it was fun along the way. I mean, basically, like, it's about, I'm 50. It's about a woman who's about my age, roughly. And uh, 
She moves back to Chicago. With, I live in Chicago, so the book's about Chicago. Moves back to Chicago to take over her uncle's record store after he dies, and she gets you know nostalgic and kind of gets reacquainted with her love of music, and also some of the, it becomes a local again. So um, I remember about the nineties. Uh, it was, you know, I was part of the first generation, I guess, that, you know, got internet and emails and eventually I got a cell phone in the late 90s when it was kind of, you know, the point at which I had to do. But I do remember the, sort of the advent of the internet creating a lot of urban legends. Uh, I think it's because, you know, we had email, we had access to information in a, in a different way we did in the 80s. So um, there's a lot of that that's a theme in the book, but basically like she hears uh, rumors about this train, this, this train called the Gray Line that goes back to the past and travels in time and eventually decides to go back to the 1990s in order to kind of reboot her life and redo some things. And then that just gets caught up in the music scene and having a little bit too much fun. And that's sort of the subplot. So yeah, it's been out for a couple of months now. And um, you know, I'm, I'm told by people who, who like music and like American pop culture that, that they, that they find the book uh, a good read. And yeah, I just, you know, it's kind of like uh I would I, to make a, an analogy. Uh, there are a couple of movies in the '90s that I think stood out in terms of like, like Pulp Fiction, you know, and, and Days and Confused and Friday, where you're just kind of hanging with and riding along with the main characters, and that's the sort of the look and feel of the movie. Like I, you know, I've never been a gangster. I don't own a gun. I probably never will. But I kind of felt like I'm hanging out with Jules and Vincent in Pulp Fiction, going along on the rides, you know, to the early morning stakeout and everything that happened at the the diner. And I, I really felt like I was a part of that. So that's the approach I took with the book to have you kind of hang out with Darby, the, the record store owner who time travels back in time and really kind of like hang out with her, just like what you're one of her buddies. And that's how it, uh, I think that's the look and feel of the book. That's really cool. Are there bands from the nineties or, or is, is it fictionalized or is it like, yeah. I mean, is it fictionalized to like made up bands or is it actually Nirvana and Smash the Pumpkins and these bands? Yeah. I mean, all those bands are in it. I did make up, um, I kind of set a rule in my mind where if the characters are going to see a band and the, you know, the, the scene is describing that, that I decided to make up a band because um, I, I felt it'd be kind of hard to do play by play of like, you know, a certain show. But at the same time, when, when, once Darby is back in the 1990s, she still has access to the time travel train and she ends up getting her old music critic job back. You know, just kind of as a junior writer at the city paper. So uh, once she gets comfortable with that, she decides like to go check out some more things and I'm not going to spoil too much, but she does, you know, she does time travel back a little further to see Nirvana's first show in Chicago uh, at Metro 33 days after Smells Like Teen Spirit was released in 1991. Um, so it necessitated, I had to do a little bit of research, but there's a couple of made up bands, you know, just for the purpose of creating fiction. And uh, one little extra for music fans is that if they read the book, they're familiar with '90s music. They'll they'll notice that the, all the chapters are named for a pivotal '90s album or song. So uh, there's little extras in there for the the diehard music lovers that hopefully they'll they'll find uh, to their liking. That's really cool. Yeah. So I I grew up in the '90s, but I'm about ten years younger. So <laughs> I was I was like eleven and twelve when this stuff was going on. But I was into it, but not probably as much as you know you were. The, prime of your listening to music you know age i was my parents were taking away records from saying i'm not allowed to listen to this yeah. and i had to basically i was whatever they rules they had is what i had to listen to but i mean i still found them on cassettes and stuff but you 
you opened up the thing that I, the link you sent me with the question of you know what would you do if you could travel back to the 90s yeah and, and i know mine is um 100 i i'm a big blind melon fan and i would love to okay. take acid and go to woodstock 94 <laughs> and see that show because shannon hoon had been sober but in the spirit of woodstock he took acid on that in that show and it was so such a really good performance and i remember him taking the drum the hand drums from the band and giving it to the audience and then security taking it back and then him taking it back now, so that would be my thing. So what, what what would your if you could go back for one event in the nineties, what would you pick? I don't know. Well, so side note on Blind Melon. I remember um so in the I want to say probably the summer of ninety, I think it was the summer ninety-three. It was like I would watch 120 minutes on MTV and like Blind Melon didn't even have I think their album was not released. They didn't even have a video and they started showing live shows from Seattle. Like here's kind of the next big band from Seattle called Blind Melon. And Shannon, who's, you know, just around all, walking on stage. And I had a friend who was from New Jersey um, who, when we got back to school, um, I was a senior. So I think I was a senior. And so it was probably the like the fall of 93 was like, yeah, yeah, I just saw Blind Melon. They did this show and he gave me a little foreshadowing. I didn't know much about them other than what I seen on TV. He's like, yeah, you could tell totally tell the, the singers hopped up on heroin. I'm kind of like, well, how do how would you know that? And he's like, well, you know, there's rumors about it i guess you know back then even though i knew a lot about music there were some people in the forefront of uh the indiscretions of rock stars at that time and maybe that's just a dynamic of the live music scene but uh yeah i don't know there's a couple so i love british rock um you know in may of 1990 i was getting ready to graduate high school so i couldn't have been in this concert but there's a legendary concert by the stone roses that happened in may of i think may 27 1990 that um yeah, I probably have to time time travel back, and I would have to also hop on a plane to England uh, to go see the the show in Merseyside. Where at the time, the Stone Roses were the biggest band in Britain. They were there's this thing in in British rock that I think has happened. It's kind of fizzled out now. Where there was always who's going to be the next Beatles, who's going to be the next biggest rock and roll band of all time from the UK. Um, so you know there was there's a handful of there's you know the Happy Mondays and the Blue Aeroplanes, and then the stone roses were kind of going to be that, that almost sure that they're going to be that, but then they did that first album and they just sort of fought with the record company. didn't do anything for six years. And then eventually Oasis came along and probably took up the mantle of what at least the fan, the music fans who love British rock and are from the UK wanted and became huge. But I'd probably love to go back to see that, um, that, that show because it was all, it was, I think in the nineties also, restarted the whole music fest thing um definitely because of Lollapalooza um and, and subsequent to Lollapalooza there was like the Vans Warped Tour and um the Lilith Fair which was you know primarily uh female kind of folk and folk rock singers uh Blues Traveler as you know did their whole thing with the Horde Tour I don't know uh I know that was kind of characterized as like the hippie bands uh or people who were like who like the Grateful Dead would like these bands like Blues Traveler Widespread Panic and um you know, Guster, maybe. I can't remember who was on that tour. So all those things popped up, but it had been going on in England for a while. I mean, there's the Glastonbury tour. The Stone Roses was just kind of, you know, it was the one band, but it took, it was an outdoor concert that took on that sort of look and feel. And I think sort of gave the green light to people be like, you know, you can go see a band. It doesn't have to be in a stadium. It doesn't have to be this big production. It can be out in the field and there's a stage and there's some other things going on. So I, I'd probably go to the, that Stone Roses show or one of the early uh, outdoor shows that were sort of the start of the music, outdoor music fest thing again. Because I think that's a dynamic and a kind of cultural high point of the 90s that we just kind of take for granted now. 
Um, but it's it's part of it's part of music every day now. I think, especially since we're out of the pandemic, we're seeing it again. Yeah, yeah. This has been the more concerts than I've been to all year, uh, or any year of my life has been this year because everybody's on tour again. Everything's mm-hmm. opened back up, so we went and saw all these different shows, and we were supposed to see the Flaming Lips in New Orleans, but they uh, okay. the hurricane stopped that from happening, and then. But we're still going to see the Smile Radiohead's new side project in uh, Providence um, on Monday. So okay, great. Yeah, and was what you said about um, you know UK only having one band at a time. I never really thought about that in terms of it could be because of the Beatles being you know what's the next Beatles. But I remember Eric Clapton talked about that. He said when Cream's first album blew up in the states, he was go- he went home expecting to be you know hailed a hero and. And mm-hmm. but Hendrix our experience came out and he's like UK only has an attention span for one band at a time and <laughs> his wasn't it. Yeah, it's weird that, that, that Jimi Hendrix had to go over to the England to get a record deal. And and same with like Chrissy Hines and the Pretenders. Like she was kind of the punk scene. If you haven't seen it, um, watch. It's on, I think it's on Netflix now. There's an FX series called Pistol. It's about the Sex Pistols. There's about seven episodes. I think I watched the thing in like two or three nights. I, like I just consumed the whole thing because I love the Sex Pistols and I love that, you know, just kind of music history that really, you know, I guess I hope like my book and like those movies I mentioned where you're kind of you're in the thick of it. You're hanging out with these characters and seeing what they see and experiencing what they they're doing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, the UK definitely has its tastes. Uh, I, I don't know. I kind of feel like they they're sort of they they get trends in rock and roll a little quicker than the US does because they're not as distracted. I mean, they have their pop pop idol type of you know boy band stuff, but they kind of separate. They don't get uh, for as much as you might say that they have uh, attention spans for only like one big rock band at a time, like I think they're they're not as they have a, a pop music and the whole boy band thing and the singer songwriter thing with people who don't write their own music and play instruments. Like they consider that that's like a talent show thing on the side. I think that they have a, their radar up for the next great rock and roll band all the time. Maybe because of the Beatles and the Stones just kind of set the tone, you know, sixty years ago, and that's that's sort of their mindset. Yeah, there you see that. And I don't like like everybody can, says you know the Beatles are the first boy band, and I see what they're they're saying, but it's yeah. like yeah, but the Beatles wrote their own songs and they formed themselves a, a group and they were playing their instruments and they're they were they were the first they were a rock band. They're not a boy band, yeah. but yeah. they were singing love songs and and they all you know all the harmonies and stuff. Maybe that's why they say that. But it's like I would love if a boy band like a I don't know like a Justin Timberlake, one of those guys, would go on a pilgrimage and do psychedelics and end up in india and then come and write a really brilliant album but it just hasn't happened the beatles did that the beatles you know sergeant peppers came out just changed the world and all these new pop artists they don't have any any heart or soul it's just like they're just on a production at the same time like the the cure you know you could say they're a rock band and a a, a punk goth whatever listen to the lyrics i mean they they sing love songs too and so does echo and the body men and um yeah, maybe the Pixies don't and L7 doesn't, but, uh, you know, any of your favorite bands that are, you would consider rock are going to have some things that have some, uh, you know, maybe they're not as sappy and it's not as, uh, you know, falsely emotional as something that like the Backstreet Boys or One Direction is going to put out. But, like, you know, human relationships are a common thing. I think rock, punk, I mean, there's punk bands that talk about relationships in their songs it doesn't doesn't make them the same thing as a boy band so I, I, yeah um somebody was saying that about the beatles if they were the first boy band they definitely evolved pretty darn fast and you know when they're putting out two three albums a year in 67 68 69 and you know revolver came out in 66 and they're doing the psychedelic thing in 67 
and you know then putting out the white album yeah they're definitely not a boy band so uh you know the good part about music is we can debate it and you know the the albums are still what they are they're still great yeah and so i want to ask you about one thing you said um indie rock uh you know the 90s happened and indie rock tops the charts and i always try to figure out what why i thought 90s were the best um the best decade in music because i did think that for a long time growing up and then i went and got into like echo and the bunnymen and some bands from the 80s that I, was, I didn't like the 80s but it's because i didn't like what was popular in the 80s there's so yeah. much good music beneath the surface but do you think that that's what sets the 90s apart is that the underground music became the number like you know reached the top or has it always kind of been happening that way yeah i think it's the approach so i mean um you know i didn't like i think in the 80s i didn't really like prince that much because it was always on the radio madonna was always on the great on the radio but they have some great songwriting pop songs you can't deny that they're legends um whereas like the cure and echo and the bunny and the pixies was kind of like it'd show up on a college station first and then one or two of their songs i i guess i look at the staying power of some of those if you had to compare um oh i don't know yeah i just saw echo and the Bunnymen here in chicago um about going on a month and a half two months ago and they're still around but is um I don't know, is, is Glass Tiger still around? You know, they had a, a chart-topping hit in the 80s. No, I don't think so. So I, but what I would say about the 90s is, so I graduated high school in 1990. It was kind of a strange time. So kind of getting, before I get to your answer, like in 1990, yeah, there was still like Debbie Gibson and New Kids on the Block on the radio. But there was also room for The Cure and The Pixies and like Living Color was the biggest hard rock band in the world. And these um, four, uh, you know, Black guys from the Bronx who went to high school together who are they're just they're just straight hard rock with some melodies. And Vernon Reed, their guitar players, you know, like Hendrix on steroids in a way. Uh, and I think it it opened that there was some, you know, there was some willingness to have something besides that. But I think that we we kind of mark the beginning of the decade musically with Nirvana and Smells Like Keen Spirit and Nevermind the album. I think the difference is it blew up. Um, I think, you know, I, I read some article a couple months ago about what happened in 1991 in the summer that, okay, so you got Ugly Kid Joe was kind of like, a you know, they kind of sounded like a metal band. They're kind of not really hair metal, but kind of taking some of the same notes, putting out their album and at the, the others. So there was Nirvana's Nevermind actually came out late August. And the other huge album was the double album by Guns N' Roses, which tells you that rock wasn't going away. but I think the record companies took note and saw that bands that played their own instruments and wrote their own songs. And a lot of times, you know, I think Oasis and Nirvana are, are pretty good examples of this, where the band has a large role, if not a credit, in the production of the album. It wasn't just like, no, no disrespect to Def Leppard or Van Halen, but it wasn't like it, we got away from hiring the big rock producer to produce the album and put it out. Like there was a lot more say um, from indie bands. Uh, and indeed, la indie labels in terms of putting out music that people reacted to well, and th they bought these albums in the millions. And then I think um, <laughs> there was this. I, I remember there was this um, behind the music. I I, I I used to watch VH1 behind the music, and I I found myself watching the one about Poison. And I don't like Poison at all, but uh, Brett Michaels is kind of basically bitching and complaining that you know he walks in the record store. I guess it was Electra. I might have the record label wrong. Walks in one day, you know, in '89, and their their post they're, the most important band of the label was on the wall behind the receptionist when you come up from the elevator. So Poison was behind them, behind the receptionist, and then 
I don't know, maybe like 18 months later, he comes back and the poster is replaced with an Alice in Chains poster. And he kind of complained that that told him everything he needed to know about the record label's priority and the type of music that they are promoting. So, uh, yeah, I think that there's um, there was a, definitely an interest in authenticity, uh, both from record label. The record label's kind of caught on once Nirvana did their thing and really the, their album, the first, first major label album blew up. And uh, they kind of said, all right, that's what we need to do. We need to find rock bands, not pop bands. And, you know, at the same time, we kind of hear stories about a band kind of changing their image overnight. They're a rock band and now they want to be a grunge band. They wish they yeah. were from Seattle. I mean, I knew people. Yeah, you know, I was at a freshman in college in 91. I, I would work my summer job with with guys be like, yeah, I'm going up to Seattle. See if I can get in a band as if you're like going to go try out for the, the <laughs> Mariners and see if you play first base like it there's this mindset that I need to kind of be in a certain place uh and do what they do and you know maybe the unfortunate side is we got poster grunge we got Nickelback and Creed and you know some bands that were kind of if not faking it definitely were derivative 100% I really think that yeah what so it's already interrupt but like the last yeah like the thing that you said was the indie and there's more the indie band thing happened because there's more of a focus on the artist and what the artist had to say, not what Mr. Veteran producer has to say and and how they're going to reshape the music for the market or for, you know, for the industry. There was a focus on the artist more than anything, I think. Exactly. And that's what we that's what I love in music. You take a band like Wilco, who's producing yeah. Yankee Fox Drive Hotel and the label says, this isn't what we want from you. And so he he. Try, you know, goes to a different label and has the best, most successful album of his career. And I love that, those kind of stories. But yeah, yeah you see the way that um, you, uh, the record industry tries to shape music. A band like Nirvana comes out and then they immediately say, we got to find more bands like that. And then you get your Bush and your Silver Chair and your other bands that I didn't dislike. I'm not saying necessarily didn't like them, but they were finding out that sound. But then you get your Nickelback yeah. and your Seethers that come out that they really are just like packaging these bands to be like the next one or Puddle of Mud, the bands that I can't stand. Yeah. Um, and that, so that's what we see the record labels do. They've always done it, right? Arctic Monkeys come out, then you get bands like the Growlers and the, that kind of sound. They try to find the waves, but the bands that come out with that first original sound, those are that's the stuff you're looking for. And, and then when that Nirvana album came out, wasn't there like four other albums that right in like within a month or two of each other, like 10? Um, yeah, so 10 came out. I remember uh, I was in spring. Uh, so I was a freshman in college. I went to New Orleans with a friend of mine for spring break, I think because he lived there. His parents lived there. I remember going through a record store. It was like cutting edge. And I'm at a record store. Like I put the headphones on. There's like this little tiny screen where I could see the video for Alive where, you know, Eddie Vedder's riding the crowd. He's crowd surfing. And I'm like, oh, I don't know who this band is, but they sound pretty cool. But I remember that. And then, you know, fast forward to the fall. They're one of the biggest bands in the world. So it was, yeah, Nirvana. Um, Nevermind came out, Bad Motor Finger by um, Soundgarden, who had been in Seattle forever. I mean, they've been putting out albums since the since 85 or 86. Um, Alice in Chains had a, a kind of a hard rock album you know, called Facelift who came out before, which I it wasn't on my radar, but kind of resurfaced. I knew the Screaming Trees from my freshman year as a college DJ. They had a, an album which I actually cite in my book called Un Uncle Anesthesia, which was actually co-produced by Chris Cornell, you know, when nobody knew who the hell Chris Cornell was or the Screaming Trees. And then, um, yeah, 10, obviously the huge album by Pearl Jam, I think. I don't know. Maybe it was uh, a switch from, you know, Brett Michaels in his spandex with his, you know, teased hair and high pitched vocals to like that more masculine sound that came out of the vocal cords of Eddie Vedder and also um, 
Nirvana, you know, Kurt Cobain and um, Chris Cornell. And I don't know, maybe it was just kind of like, wow, this, this, this whole thing sounds good. Let's switch to that. But there was, and I mean, there was also like alternative music was around and maybe we were labeled it as college rock, but I would go to a show and, you know, there'd be a full house in a theater, maybe not a stadium, but a theater to see Ned's Atomic Dustbin or Fishbone or uh, there's just an, an undercurrent and interest from, you know, kids in the suburbs who had had pop radio stuffed down their throat. Um, I didn't really come from, I, I think that the kids today who are in high school now, and I've got a high school student in, in my household, they're more into guitars than I guess my generation was. They're a little bit more active. And the good news is that I got asked about this on a podcast last night. You know, if you're pick, if, it, if you're talking to a kid, um, boy or girl who's picking up a guitar in 2022, they're not trying to learn songs by Foster the People or um, 21 Pilots. They're, you know, they're trying to get, trying to figure out how to play Hendrix and Led Zeppelin and, you know, kind of the standard, you know, maybe some ACDC, maybe some television, depending on whether they they trend metal or, or indie rock or alternative, that it's, you know, the kind of the standards are still there. And they're, they're still in a, a, um, a respect paid to rock and roll. Nobody's trying to play like the new album by Cannons on their guitar. If they're a guitar player, they're, you know, my kid doesn't like Dylan. So he's not, he's not really into folk, but, you know, I hear him try to play Marquee Moon by television, you know, before dinner. So uh, I think that's a good thing. And there also are a crop of rock bands that are kind of in the indie rock footprint like wet leg right now is is starting to blow up they have you know, this, these two women i think they're probably in their late 20s from the isle of white in england they're coming to chicago and playing tours in the u.s because people just recognize their album is good and their lyrics are clever and they drop some meth bombs and they kind of just do what they do and they don't sound they sound maybe a little bit like the breeders but i think that you know their songwriting is a lot more complex without being you know too complex and then there's bands like Mama, which sound like uh, Veruca Salt and a lot of the 90s bands and um, another band that's big in the UK right now called Dry Cleaning, which they're kind of, you know, art rock and alternative. And they kind of a nod to David Bowie and some of the clever rock of the 70s. And, and those are kind of the three that um, are really, you know, taking off right now. We'll see if there's, you know, one of them. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it kind of comes down to like, does, does one of them have a number one album, number one single? You know, and, and is that the tipping point to kind of change things back to rock and roll? I don't know what the answer to that is, but rock and roll isn't dead. There's people who still play guitars and want to learn the old stuff because that's what they know to be the best. Yeah, for sure. And um, to your point about the kids learning the uh, younger stuff, I have a bandmate that um, teaches guitar and he um, and he said that's what he, exactly what he said. He said, all these kids I'm teaching is like they're not wanting to learn anything that I don't know. Like it's all stuff that I grew up with. And I, I grew up learning. That's what they want to hear. And he's like, it's a, he thinks music, music could take a corner. Yeah. Music's cyclical, I think too. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I wanted to, to bring this conversation a little bit to, uh, you know, the piece on drugs. Yeah. Uh, one thing that happened in the nineties was the, um that, you know, the grunt with grunge music was the heroin use and the, uh, you know, we saw some Kurt Cobain's death. Um, and I read heavier than heaven. I'm sure you read that. Um, the, I swear I've not, but, but, but go okay. on. It's um, it's really dark. I mean, it gets into Kirk. It starts about his childhood, sets it up, and then it gets into his addiction, and you feel like you're right there with him. And it's like the amount of heroin he was doing was crazy. And that's why when people say, "Well, there's no way he did it because he had enough heroin in the system to kill a horse," or whatever, it's like, yeah, but he had a tolerance to handle that much heroin. That's just the facts. 
But um, I just wonder, somebody, I read something, someone was just kind of, uh, I don't know if they were just pontificating or whatever they were, but they had a theory that the reason grunge died was because when Kurt Cobain shot himself, it set the bar too high for, if you want to be authentic, it takes the authenticity away from people's depression in the music when Kurt Cobain it was, you know, it, and I just wonder if that happened in the 90s or if, because the 90s to me were amazing and then they really fizzled and turned into pretty, you know, most of the music was horrible that was popular now i'm still saying i still love neutral milk's album um there was a okay computer i mean there's still great albums in the 90s but the top the ones that were on the radio were just awful towards the end i don't know i think so i address this there's there's a a a part in my book where darby so she's back in the 90s which is kind of the plot of my book and like the that she she accidentally gets her job as a music critic, like a low level music critic at the city paperback. And she re- kind of reports to the office the first day. And um, she's kind of thinking about th- things that people have said, like what you're saying about the kind of the death of rock and roll. And she, it, it takes place in 1996 and in, in the fall of 96. And she's, uh, you know, um, I think if I remember right, she's kind of reflecting on just what the stuff that happened in 1996, like Tupac Shakur just got murdered. Um, a couple of bands broke up and there's a sort of, uh, I don't know, I think it's just a progression towards, it, you know, music changes. I want to say that Soundgarden probably broke up in 97. Um, the, the Smashing Pumpkins had, you know, on tour, their uh, keyboard player overdose and heroin and and, and the, the drummer who survived it. You know, they kind of had this shit show of an episode in anti in like in climactic and anticlimactic fashion in the middle of a big tour and i think it was 1997 maybe it was 96 I, i'm forgetting right now it was the melancholy tour as i remember yeah it. so maybe it was 96 so it, like you couldn't have scripted it any better or worse way it just highlighted uh the problems that they're out there but i think it's i don't i don't i don't think that because kurt cobain you know, he actually died on my birthday in 1994. April 5th is my birthday. And actually, Lane Staley died in April 5th in 2002. Um, I don't know. I think I think it kept trucking along there. And maybe uh, I'd counter it by saying that in 1996, when they released, you know, Posthumous to Kurt Cobain, there was a, an album called From the Muddy Banks of the Wishka, which was some outtakes and I think a live track or two. And not like new material. And that went number one. It was kind of like a compilation of the extra stuff. And it went number one as an album, which you wouldn't guess that. I don't know. I mean, uh, you wouldn't have guessed that that was you think that Nirvana's done because the singer's gone. But, you know, like we didn't hear anything about Sublime until Bradley Noel was dead pretty much. Yeah. So um, and there, you know, it's weird that Sublime, you could argue that they're one of the biggest bands of the 90s. But unless you lived in Long Beach or California and you, you, you got to see them early when Noel was still alive, like nobody's. Nobody can say like, oh, yeah, I saw that big sublime tour in 96, 97 because he was gone then. So I don't know. I think it it uh, it ran its course, but it, it had good music, had a heyday for a while. And then eventually um, it's weird because like Jive Records, which I first knew for distributing some of the Tribe Called Quest albums, those great first couple albums, made a business decision. And they started putting out all these boy bands from Orlando and they're kind of all the same to me. I mean, Backstreet Boys and... Uh, you know, NSYNC, and I don't know why you need a 98 Degrees in O-Town. Like, how many bands from Orlando that don't write their own songs and don't play instruments do you really need? But, you know, <laughs> it, was a, it was filling a market. There was a, a, you know, a market segment that was being filled, and obviously, uh, you know, there's there was enough uh, teens or teenage girls from the suburbs who 
wanted uh you know some some pretty young men to sing them love songs and dance and step wearing the uh the same outfits and you know but then blanket 182 came out and made fun of them and, with their videos so i mean there's there's something for everything it's just a matter of those artists that are out there how well they execute and um there are some great bands that are were really excellent that i think didn't have great administrative and business skills like you know there's a band called the connells are from north carolina actually very radio friendly sound in the same vein as rem but they never really hit it big i think because they were sort of on the college scene and they weren't really grunge and alternative enough and maybe a little too pop to kind of break into what was prominent in the mid 90s and then i think their uh their bass players um wife had a bout with cancer that kind of sidelined them so that happens sometimes it doesn't make them any worse of a band i mean they're a great great you know kind of alternative pop band but um yeah i don't know i mean i, I guess it would take a historian we all have our own opinions about this but i don't i wouldn't say that the day Kurt Cobain dies is when the good music died. Cause I think that we had several years after that, that a lot of really great things happened and you know, not just in rock, but you know, rap changed and we go on, on for days talking about this, that there was a lot of good stuff that, that came after that for a number of years. Yeah. And I, I have a, a friend, another bandmate that said, um, like in his opinion, it was grunge that died, not rock and roll. But with it, he also, his opinion, as he says, Nirvana is not grunge. Nirvana created the sound that became grunge, which was all the crap after. But Kurt Cobain was just a pop artist, and that's what he called himself, because I'm you know, punk pop. And um, yeah, I don't know if grunge is really a, a genre, because, I mean, if it is a genre, then it's pretty much just a handful of bands that maybe weren't even that alike. Like, you know, it'd be, uh, obviously the ones from Seattle, but when you say grunge, I think Nirvana, Allison Chain, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, L7 and some of these bands that some people never heard of that we've forgotten about, like Taj and Mother Love Bone and, and so on. And then I think post-grunge is sort of like a corporate version of that. It's like, uh, you know, kind of like the light soda version of, of grunge. I think uh, maybe we limit what the artists really brought to the table if we, we call them grunge. I mean, obviously, you say grunge and, and you know what we're talking about, but I, I feel like it's almost like a subgenre of a subgenre. Um, cause then, you know, you could say, well, this band isn't rock, it's alternative. Well, what, what does that mean? You know, it, it, it's, uh, I don't know, labels maybe don't necessarily mean as much as we think they do. Yeah. Well, I think grunge, the first band I think of is the, I don't remember the name of the band. They're, they're a pretty good band actually, but they were the one that played, was playing live on the streets in the movie, the crow, um, the first movie. And I just think of that, that movie and that kind of just rainy, dreary Seattle. And, the, you know, I think heroin, I think like kind of a, and angst, but a lot of this comes from, I guess I would say this started in the eighties with globalization and the job market going away. And it kind of destroyed a lot of families and divorces happened for the finances. And those kids came up in the nineties and that, that's the kind of, that's the music they were wanting to hear because they could relate to it. And that's what the music that was being made. Yeah. But then again, you know, Stone Temple Pilots, some people say they're grunge and they're from what Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. Santa Barbara is not really, I wouldn't say it's a terribly depressing place if you ever go down there. So, uh, you know, who knows? I think it's all about what the artists produce and how people react to it. But well, it's, it's true. But I mean, the sound, the, the music that Sundown Pots were making, it sounds like it should be coming from Seattle. A lot of it, not not all of it, but you know, like you think yeah. of like Creep, you know, Half the Man I Used to Be, or, you know, those kind of songs that are just they're fitting that kind of uh, you know depression. There's so also I was thinking about you know the '60s versus the '90s, and so you have the '60s psychedelics or the drugs. Everybody's taking psychedelics. Peace and love is the atmosphere, and it kind of all culminates with 
Woodstock 1969, Peace, Love, and Happiness. And there was just that documentary on Netflix about Woodstock 99. And I have friends with different opinions on this. I have a friend that went and said, well, that was a very biased documentary. He said, I went and I had a great experience. It was definitely run horribly by the, by the promoters, but the people yeah. there were, were for most, most of them were very, you know, they were about peace and love, most of them till the end. But I don't know, when I watch the documentary, I go, I think it's a sad way for the 90s to end when and it kind of culminates with, you know, destruction and burning it down versus peace, love, and happiness. And the drugs were different in the 90s. There was a lot of, you know, what was, your, what was your opinion about Woodstock 99? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I, it's, I, I feel like Woodstock 99 was a, 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 you know, just like post grunge was kind of a, a commoditized version. It's kind of like, all right, so I believe in this. I only went to CBGB once in my life before it closed. Um, if I'm in the Newark, Air, Newark, New Jersey airport where there's a CBGB cafe, I'm not freaking buying. I'm not going there. I'm not going to. It's maybe just me being a Gen Xer. I, I'm not going to, you know pay 25 bucks for a hamburger and fries and say I was at CBGB. It's not the same friggin' thing. So I feel like um, Woodstock 99 was, was that in the version of a, it's, it's kind of like taking the whole beautiful thing of a music fest and commoditizing it, putting Limp Biscuit on the tour. And then that, and it, you're charging $20 for a bottle of water when there's no water to go around and it's a hundred degrees and people are crowded. You know, people are going to get pissed off. What do you think is going to happen? I'm not endorsing violence, but. You know, uh, it was a corporate event that was it, it exemplifies the worst in corporate event management. Uh, it has nothing really to do with the music or the fans necessarily. So it, it, you know, Lollapalooza runs in Chicago every summer. If you go down Lakeshore Drive, you will see the, the, the there's a two or three layers of barriers on Lakeshore Drive so that nobody who is a tourist who's not paying attention or a drunk idiot is going to wander out on Lakeshore Drive and get hit by a car because that's what would happen if there weren't those three. So they, um, Chicago does a really great job of managing that event and making it as safe as possible and also enjoyable as possible. And, you know, you, you sort of pay for the privilege. Obviously it's a couple, I don't know, maybe what, $150 to go for a full day, but you know, they Metallica headline one of the, one of the nights. So it's, it's not some, some BS list of bands, you know, that you definitely pay for, get to get, get what you pay for in terms of the music and the safety and all the things that go with it. And uh, I think would not Woodstock 99 was just kind of a bunch of, uh, it wasn't quite as bad as Firefest. I'll say that, but uh, you know, it's, it, it definitely wasn't a pinnacle of what it shouldn't be in the, the hall of fame of corporate uh, event management. That's for sure. So yeah, your friend's probably right. Um, but documentaries obviously take a position and they, you know, spend an hour and a half, you know, sort of, arguing that position on well they wanted to blame male you know masculine toxicity bands like limp biscuit how angry they were and they were but like they said like rage against the machine played and there wasn't any problems with their set and so it was it was once the water bottle stopped happening and once like the, the people were hot they were sleeping you know all the th the problems you named so my buddy was saying yeah if it, if it had been run with those same people and same bands but run the way that it was run in 94 or 69 there wouldn't have been any problems yeah, and I, I mean, '69 was. I mean, I don't think it it was planned. And it's true <laughs> about '69. It wasn't. They didn't expect that many people to show up. And maybe it was a different look and feel at the time. And um, you know, people just kind of cooperate. I, I remember there was a. It was Wavy Gravy. I think it was way before I was born. But you know, so you starts the show. I think on the Saturday of Woodstock '69 is like okay, we're having a breakfast in bed for four hundred thousand. And I think throughout the day they're like, okay, it's a little crowded, it's a little hot. 
you know, be cool to people, be kind, you know, we're all here for the same reason. Uh, whereas it's different than, you know, Fred Durst with his hat backwards going to be like, oh, let's break shit or, you know, <laughs> whatever the hell he said. I'm not, you know, he's a musician and uh, obviously wants to make a living making music. And there's something beyond, you know, that obviously that's, I don't like their music. It, you know, nothing disrespectful to them about, you know, wanting to make a living, make music, but you know, they're, they're not Fugazi. They're not Led Zeppelin. You know, they're not Janis Joplin. There's definitely a, a quality issue there comparing Limp Biscuit to some of the other bands that we could see. Well, I, I, I completely agree. I'm, I'm from, uh, I'm from Fred Durst's hometown. He was a generation above me, but uh, where, so where are you? Where is he, I don't even know where they're from. Where are they from? He, he's from Gastonia, North Carolina. But he'll, he claims Jacksonville. That's all you'll ever hear him say, cause that's where his band's from. But, he grew up here. Um, my, my bandmate's older brother was a DJ for our local radio station, Power 98, and they were they were like best friends. He called him to ask him if he wanted to join his band. He's like, nah, I've got this gig at Power 98, and then their band blew up. And But um, I yeah, I can't – I don't see how they blew up so big. It was just, you know, uh, Maynard from Tool, he talked about those bands and said, well, when people – like he was – he always gets on a high horse with his music, of course, because, you know, yeah. when we're not making music and my peers aren't making music, well, they're going to fill that void with bands like Limp Bizkit and Korn and – and um, I thought it was kind of funny. And also, I think it's kind of true. I love Tool. I've always been a fan. I mean, I don't think Corn. I mean, Corn is not really my kind of music, but I, I feel like they're a little bit more authentic than Limp Biscuit. You know, they yeah. obviously, some people think they really suck, but I don't think that they're the same thing. And I'm, I'm not going to say that, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I think Corn, for as much as I might not be into the music, I think that there's a little bit more intention to make their kind of music versus Hey, I'm making this rock video because I want to be a rock star. I, I, I yeah. Know. Well, I was I was a huge corn fan when I was young, but I mean, I was like 13, and I related to the, the angst and the anger, you know. And I really liked it. But now, when I listen to it, I can't even. I'm like, I don't even know how I like this. Like, I don't like it at all. But I, it has served a purpose for me when I was young, you know, going to. You made it out alive, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, um, another person I want to bring up before I let you go is uh, you're, you're a sports and pop culture writer and another sp- and you've written for the Rolling Stone. So this makes me think of Hunter S. Thompson because he's one of my favorite writers and he was a sports yep. writer, wrote for Rolling Stone. Are you a fan of Hunter S. Thompson? A little bit, kind of more. I mean, I think he, uh, I never knew, I never met the guy or knew him. I, I mean, I think he did get a little bit of a big head. Like he, he went from hand to mouth, barely being, supposedly the story on him is when he first started writing professionally, like, He'd hunt a deer and that's what him and his wife would eat for a month, you know, and then he gets to that to sort of, um, I don't know, kind of wanting to be a a bad guy. He was definitely a colorful character. Um, you know, he ran for a mayor of like Telluride or, or Sheriff you know, Aspen. Yeah, something like that. Like, so he, Aspen, yeah, he had, he definitely had, um, I don't know, like the, that style of writing, I think, I, what I do respect about him and, and other writers, uh, you know, kind of constitute new, new journalism whether we're talking about Truman Capote or Gay Talese, you know, they kind of took, they, they formed the whole nonfiction novel. Like they, they decided that, you know, writing things that are real doesn't have to be boring and, you know, read like a newspaper column that you can, you know, document or Tom Wolfe's a great example. Like one of my favorite movies yeah. from the 80s, three hour movie is the, the right stuff where Tom Wolfe was writing, I think for Rolling Stone and, um, he was given the task to like go find out why these guys want to go to space so bad. Like why why would they risk their lives to sit in a capsule for you know thirty six hours, not being able to take a bathroom break, not being able to eat, to do this thing? You know, is it about the glory or is it is there something else? So he started writing these articles 
Um, kind of a maybe a little bit, he a little more buttoned up style than Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson had, but kind of essentially took the same approach, like interviewing these people, getting right, you know, kind of riding along with them and getting a sense of what makes them tick and what motivates them. And, you know, all the, the first nine astronauts were, you know, clean cut, short haired military guys. But that doesn't answer all the questions about why they're doing what they're doing and, and how what the space program meant when it first came out. So, um, you know, the right stuff when it came out as a book was that it was essentially a nonfiction novel where we're getting to learn about these nine quirky characters uh, in the narrative storytelling type of voice that makes it a lot more interesting. You get to know the characters and kind of know. I, I don't know. It, it, so Hunter S. Thompson was great at that. I mean, he kind of did the. Uh, travel across America, get into crazy situations type of thing. So I think all of the writers of my generation who are maybe like 45 or 50 or 52 now, we definitely take a note from that. So in 90 days in the 90s, there's a, I do associate with a thing that happened in the 90s where like, if you graduated college in the mid 90s, as soon as you save up a couple of bucks, you're going to Amsterdam or Paris, you, you know, or Southeast Asia, you're traveling around the world because you know that there's something there beyond the suburb and the strip malls that you grew up, or you know, and, and I grew up in southeastern Pennsylvania outside Philly, but those kind of suburbs exist in Phoenix and Milwaukee and St. Louis and so on that kind of took it, you know, we took a little bit of, uh, you know, pro tips from Hunter S. Thompson and some of the writer writers into the, the adventure that you can have when you just go out and check out the world. So I definitely uh, think he was important for that. I'm not sure I could hang with that guy, you know, like drinking and smoking weed and shooting guns. It's kind of not really my thing. But, um, yeah, he's definitely a, a titan in literature and as a pop culture icon. I, I know that he gets a couple mentions in my book. And, you know, maybe without even thinking about it, I took uh, took a little influence from him about letting my characters do some of the things that, you know, that um, writers and just people in the 20th century do. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Like my thing about like his Gonzo style journalism, it's like he goes into the story and becomes part of the story and actually manipulates the story, change, changes things because he's doing things within the story. Whereas Tom Wolf, you know, are we talking about the same Tom Wolf, or the, the one that wrote Electric Acid Kool Aid Tests? No, that was. Um, you're, you're thinking, is that? I'm, I'm I, don't Tom, not, I thought, I thought it was Tom Wolf. It was about. It was about Ken Kesey, but um. It was I'm look it up real fast. Tom Wolf wrote uh, Vanity Fair and he wrote um the right stuff. Right. Tom it says Tom Wolf, but I think there's two Tom Wolfs because some Oh well, there's Tom Wolf and the Thomas Wolf, who is the writer in the nineteenth century, but uh, maybe I'm just yeah, that's Tom Tom here. Wolf. Tom Wolf wrote the electric acid play test. Okay. What do you oh Kesey wrote uh, one for the food the cookie. Yeah, and then the, I haven't the, had enough coffee. I haven't had enough coffee today to I, kind of yeah. talk about this. No, electric Kool-Aid acid test was about Ken Kesey. Um okay. he followed the, him and the Mary Pranksters around on the bus. And okay. yeah, but he's he's a really good writer. But Hunter Hunter S. Thompson criticized him saying, Well, he didn't have the you know, didn't have the balls to get into the story. But then he said, but he but he still yeah. somehow made an amazing book. I'm like, yeah, because he didn't need to be in the story to, to make an amazing book. Yeah, they're all he, cut from the same cloth. Um, you know, yeah, Tom Wolf wore, you know, a buttoned up white suit and a white tie. And he's definitely more of a kind of more of a traditional journalist. But he broke out of that anyway. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, if we talk to Kerouac, he could probably say to, to Hunter S. Thompson, you don't know the half of it. I don't know, you know, you didn't do half the shit that I did. He probably would, would say to him. But um, yeah, the tweets their own, and uh, the point is that they all did something 
groundbreaking with the storytelling. And um, I guess with Hunter S. Thompson, his thing was like, there's no way you can tell a story and, and be neutral, I think was one of his. One yes. of his. Mm-hmm. And you, you're going to be biased anyway, so you might as well get in and participate. Uh, I think, you know, Ken Kesey probably did a little bit of that and Tom Wolf did a little bit of that and Kerouac obviously did it, you know, half a generation before. And I don't know, I, I guess one of my complaints about writers who have bestsellers now is that um, they don't do enough of that. I mean, I mean, I'm glad Matt Haig is a bestseller, but, if, you know, I think there's kind of the subset of readers that just want to read books about people who are going on for a couple hundred pages about how, how stifling depression is. I'm not trying to minimize depression, but if I pick up a book, I kind of want to, you know, experience something with the characters. I don't want to just sit there and be, listen to somebody moaning about being, you know, sad or what they couldn't do in life. And in the nineties, um, I kind of lampooned this book. There's a, a writer called uh, Davis, David Foster Wallace, who wrote a yeah. 11 page book. Infinite Jest. Yes. I feel like it was like the Radiohead wannabe, uh, you know, book on steroids. It was like, oh, here's a book for people who need to feel intellectual because they read an 1100 page book that has footnotes on every page and the, the plot never really gets resolved and all this, you know, I, I felt like it, this this book is not about enjoying the characters or enjoying the book or revealing anything about who they are. And then there are a bunch of people who are depressed and pissed off that they're depressed and pissed off and a bunch of people are mean to each other. And that's the end of the story. If that's what the 90 was was about, then I, I guess I missed that because, <laughs> I you know, yeah, Kurt Cobain shot himself. Obviously, he was in a bad place at the end of his life. And there's other artists, you know, that's maybe part of being an artist is that, you know, some make it, some don't. But I didn't think the 90s sucked as much as uh, David Foster Wallace might have you know, implied in his book. And I don't really see why people think he's so brilliant. Yeah, I tried uh, to read it. Somebody told me I had to read it. So I, I got almost 400 pages in and I was like, this book is nothing is happening. It's the most boring thing I've ever read in my life. So I stopped reading it. And Yeah, were you pissed off about the time you spent reading it? Because I know yeah. some people were you know, like, why the hell did I spend two months reading this stuff? Uh, I don't know. Maybe there's something in there that I didn't get, but... Um... You know, it's kind of the opposite of Hunter S. Thompson. It's the opposite of, of Tom oh, Wolf. Yeah. There is participation in the story by that author, but I feel like if I'm going to participate in the story, I'm going to go into a scene and be one of the characters, like in a Woody Allen movie. I don't want to be hanging out with these boring, you know, yeah, depressed, angry people, you know, playing at a tennis academy. That's just my my take. I think the '90s was was much more than that. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, there was a lot going on in the 90s, and a lot of it was fun. I mean, I had a great time in the 90s. When I say the music was kind of depressing, depressing, it doesn't mean it left you depressed. It still had had oomph, it had that you know power, and 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 I'm like Rage Against the Machine. Yes, yeah, it's, it's angry, but it's also get me got me moving. I mean, when I go to the gym, I listen to Rage Against the Machine. It's a uh, you know, I, I like I love the 90s. Honestly, that's my generation. The 90s, made, the 90s music made us think. So, I mean, the good part about the 90s music is it did make us kind of think what we what do we think about this versus, uh, you know, some of the pop radio pop on the radio in the 80s. Some of it did that. A lot of it didn't. So I think that was, you know, to kind of get back to your earlier question, that was part of the shift, too. And that music actually meant something more than tapping your foot and, um, you know, just singing baby 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 there's a lot more to, to what music had to offer in the 90s for the average artist that maybe didn't make it as big as a prince or madonna or nirvana or pearl jam that uh their voices were they're given a voice to speak a little bit more artistically than you know the average kind of artist in the 80s that's just my take yeah 
So I'm going to, um, won't keep you much longer, but before I go, I'm going to ask you, uh, go ahead and plug your book, ask or tell my people where you can get, where they can find your book. Yeah. 90 days in the nineties. You can go to 90 days in the nineties.com. If you want to, if you go there and order it there, I'll, I'll sign you a copy, send you some swag. Uh, or, you know, it's obviously on Amazon or any other place you buy books. I, you know, I would say if you have a local record or local, I keep saying record store, cause there are some record stores in Chicago that carry my book because I, you know, approach them. Um, but you know, small record stores or bookstores. If you feel like you want to support the little, the little local store, obviously they can order it for you. It might take a week. Um, but Amazon, if you're on online all day, Amazon, you point and click and, and buy a copy or two. I will say if you got music friends and music nut family members, you know, the holidays are coming up. You know, if if my book isn't your bag, definitely keep in mind your your crazy uncle who's in a a Pearl Jam tribute band might like this book and, you know, it's available anywhere you buy books, I guess. Right on, man. Well, thanks for joining me. Thanks for being on here. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. No problem. And um, I'll, I'll really enjoy and looking forward to reading your book. I'm definitely going to order it. Good deal. Awesome. I'll talk to you later. Peace out. All right. Peace, Nicks. Thanks again for listening. Once again, happy Thanksgiving. Hope everybody has a wonderful time with their families. And um, thanks for listening so much. Thanks for supporting. And again, five stars on Apple will help us out. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter. Go to www.thepeaceonjugs.com slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter. And peace out. out. out.